0: All right, guys, this time we'll we'll crank it up here and go as far as we can go, and and uh, I believe we're what in Second Kings eighteen, and going to finish Second Kings tonight and get into Chronicles a little bit. Uh, it's kind of interesting this last section of Kings. There's a lot of things happens in the last two or three chapters that have a lot of significance to them, and uh, particularly with Hezekiah as we look through this and. Uh, We've seen this process with the kings, back and forth, good, bad, good, bad, and then bad, bad, bad. And then all at once, and you seem like you're not going to change, and then you have you have a change in the in the, in the system again when Hezekiah comes along. Any particular questions with that as we as we start getting into that tonight, or where do you want to start? I think one thing interesting about Hezekiah when we look at it. He talks about him trusting the Lord. He said there was no other king in Judah before him or after him that was ever as righteous as he was about upholding the things of God and uh, and uh, and setting the standards. And said he, he held uh, verse six and eighteen said he held fast the Lord did not turn from following him but kept the commandments the Lord commanded Moses. And this is the key when you look at this. it. Said the Lord was with him and wherever he went he prospered. Now that sounds like you know some you hear some of your proverbs like that he rebelled against the king of Assyria did not serve him he defeated the Philistines and so you see this man honoring God and you see God's blessing on Israel but the amazing thing about it was kings when they change how quickly that process can change and how quickly God changes his mind and I often read through this and I'm going that's the same God we serve today folks you know it, there's nothing changed in that process Except that we have an intermediary in Christ that that probably keeps us from from suffering some of those falls. What else in there? Anything in the last three chapters of King that uh, kings that uh, intrigued you? No, it, what there was, yeah, it wouldn't happen in his lifetime. But God said he's going to punish him. He said I'm not going to do it in your lifetime. And he was, cont- I don't know, it it seems kind of odd. When, when he asked God for that, what do you think the key was there? That's in chapter 19, and it talks, and he said, On uh, Hezekiah's illness and recurrence, and on the days he became terminally ill, the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, came out and said to him, This is what the Lord says, Put your affairs in order, for you're about to die. And he goes down through, and he talks about He, he prays, and in, in, in verse, uh, verse, I think, verse 5, yeah. He said, I heard your prayer, I've seen your tears, and look, I will heal you. What do you think the key in there for Hezekiah is for God to act like that and decide to give him 15 more years? He said, you know, he, he said, I've heard you cry, and I've seen your tears. But what did, I, what did Hezekiah exhibit that I think that pleased God? Sincerity, but what else? Humility. I think he saw his humility. That here, here's a man who legitimately was crying out to God. I'm not ready to go, and God. And I think he, his humility brought him to a point to where God just said, "I'm going to honor that. I'm going to honor it because because here's a man that understands it. And and He did give him 15 more years. It said, you know, because it names him there. Yeah, exactly. Hezekiah, when God promised him to heal, here's something else I want to look at. But it's a great point. Look at uh, look at verse. Uh, eight in chapter twenty. Said Hezekiah asked Isaiah, What is the sign that the Lord will heal me and that I will be that I will go up to the Lord's temple on the third day? And Isaiah said, This is a sign to you from the Lord that he will do what he has promised. Should the shadow go ahead ten steps or back ten steps? And then Hezekiah answered, It's easy for the shadow to lengthen ten steps. No, let the shadow go back ten steps. So Isaiah the prophet called out the Lord and brought the shadow back the ten steps, and it descended. Was that doubt? I mean, God promised him, and he says, but what's the sign? I'm just interested in your thought process on it. Now, I know it's traditional in the Old Testament to give signs and ask for signs, but if God promises it, and he says, "Oh, okay, but show me a sign." And so, so Isaiah has, actually has to go to God and get a sign for him. So I thought that was kind of interesting. To uh, he wanted to know right then, but wanting to know, period. If if God said you're going to live 15 years, why wasn't that good enough for him? You know, that's 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 where I'm coming from with it. And of course, we're all like that if we can get an answer. But exactly, it, you're exactly right. It's, it's just that, that matter of not knowing. And I got to thinking about that 15 years today, and I'm thinking, it would be all right if he told me he was going to let me live longer, but I don't know if I'd want to know exactly how long. <laughs> it would be okay about the first 10 or 12, and after that you're going, okay. Now. <laughs> because it's not going to happen a second time, you know. Why you, you ask yourself, why, do you let, why did you let a lot of these things happen here that happens? And, and knowing that he's going to bring judgment on Israel for a lot of it. And uh, when you when you when you follow it through here, I don't know. You might do that. You never know. One thing I had marked in this verse we talked about a minute ago in verse 19 and 20, where we talked about not happening in his lifetime. And he said, you know, why not? If there will be peace and security during my lifetime, and I had wrote down positive response to a negative prophecy. It was a negative, but Hezekiah was positive about it as long as it wasn't going to happen while he was alive. So it it it, it is in a sense of word. I don't know that I have read where there was a rule that you didn't do that. And maybe he just maybe he just knew it was bad judgment on his part to show people what you had because it, it made it more enticing to come and conquer them, probably. I think it was more of a survival tactic in anything than something written or spiritual. It's just, you know, if you've got a treasure, you don't show everybody. You know, in that day and time, it gives them less reason to come and try to take you or conquer you. You notice in the Old Testament, when you look, when you study through the Old Testament, it's pretty much black and white. God, God doesn't spend a whole lot of time in the gray areas. I mean, it's good, 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 bad. You get your hand slapped. I mean, He can't deal. That's why we, you know, we're so blessed to have this intermediary in Christ, because when God dealt with things there, it was live or die, do right or do wrong, and and there wasn't a whole lot of way to around it. You could you could serve faithfully for a long time and mess up, and you were gonna get punished and and you see that in Israel. I mean, 30 and 40 years of, of, of godliness and then change and then overnight almost. And God would bring judgment on them without, without any thought about it whatsoever. And particularly when Manasseh came on the scene, he he you know, he did even God's eyes from the start. And even even worse than, than some of the rest of what he looks in. Yeah, oh yeah, in, verse, uh, in, in chapter 21 in verse 12, he said, this is what the Lord of Israel says. I am about to bring such disaster on Jerusalem and Judea that everyone who hears it will shudder. Now that's that's a serious judgment. That's not just God saying, I'm gonna judge you. It's gonna to be to the point that everybody in this land and hears about it, they're gonna they're gonna be afraid. So he had a real he had a real issue with these guys. And then he goes on to talk about wiping. He said, Look at verse uh, Second half of verse 13, he said, I will wipe Jerusalem as clean as one wipes a bowl, wiping it and turning it upside down. That's pretty descriptive. I mean, he said, I'm, you're going, I'm going to take you away from here. And, and that's what I try to relay back in when I'm looking to the New Testament. We are still, we're still under the authority of that God who is displeased when we don't do what he asks us to do. Now, he doesn't approach us the same way in punishment today, he can, but he don't. But it's the same God. Nothing's changed in, in in his in his dealing with sin. All right. What else? Anything else in these on the kings? You, you, you when you when you find in that run of kings, there you know it's it, it, it seems to be. And of course, you know David was a great king and God loved him, but he had his issues, and uh, it sounds like it. Yeah. That that he just, he he was right on the money all the time, trying to do what was right before God. Well, then he, then who's making the decisions at eight? Probably a godly mother, as you were talking about. <laughs> Probably so, because, yeah. And there was two or three in here that rained, like, for three months. I thought, man, they were, that was just, that was a bad deal there. I mean, you're in, and you're out, and you're gone. Of course, one of me locked up in jail. And, but, uh. All right, in chapter 22, it gets real interesting with Josiah. And this is where they find the book of the law in the temple. And I just thought that was kind of interesting to think about that they had gotten to the point that they had lost the scriptures, the holy scriptures, the book of the law, and found it and even wasn't sure what was in it. So that's how quickly they transgressed from God's holy people who come through all this process in in and they don't, even, they don't even know where this book is. They don't even know where their Holy script. But it's because they're worshiping everything in the world. One of the other things it talks about in here, these kings, when they go back and forth, and they talk about all of these idols and things that they destroy, why was that so prominent with the Jews? Why would they have such a problem that every time they backslid, they, they took on everything around. They took on every kind of different different physical God they could find. Because they knew, I mean, you know, they knew what the commandment <laughs> said. Why do you think they have such a problem for them? I th- and I think the thing that you hit on that, they didn't destroy all them people, so every time they looked around, they saw all these idols, and they saw all these other people worshiping all these physical gods, whatever they were, whether it was a wooden pole whether it was a statue. And so naturally, when they digressed away from a holy God, they were looking for something to worship. And, and of course, I think there was a lot, huh? It is, and I think there was probably uh, probably a cultural draw there to be part of what was going on, and uh, there was a lot of things that went on in these pagan religions that was that was really very immoral and very bad that attracted them that that they thought well if we worship this god that would be okay, and uh, so there's three or four things that I think that affected this drastically because when you get back doing what God said do, and it's a pretty strict set of guidelines, and so it was easy to fall away from it, particularly, and and one of the big issues is God never intended for them to have a king to start with, I mean, they wanted the king, so they got what they asked for, they got good ones, and they got bad ones, and, they, and some of that may have been God just letting them, kind of God saying, okay, this is what you want to do, see what you can do with it, but when you mess up, I'm going to be there, and he was, yes, ma'am, that's not wanting to be separate like God called them to be, is it? And that's part of the problem there. And and not being too hard on them, just, just like we said, it would be easy for us to do. We're attracted to what's around. Hey, one of the biggest problems we've got in the church today is the world has got us so saturated with worldly things that there's not a whole lot of difference in us. It doesn't mean we're bad, but, you know, when you try to share Christ with somebody and they look and they say, well you don't look any happy, any more peaceful, you're not any better off financially. You're, you know, you're asking me to give up some of my time and some of my money and I don't see that that Jesus has helped you that much because they're not looking at the salvation part of it, but they're looking at what we exhibit in our lives. And so it's 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 part of the same process, I think. Yeah, just you know, go somewhere else. And and their major problem with everything here was idolatry. I mean, that was the biggest biggest sin they had is it wasn't just backsliding, it wasn't just falling away from God. As soon as they fell away they, they went all the way to the other side to a foreign God. It's one thing to be fall, falling away from God and just and needing to find your way back, but it's another thing when you fall away from the Almighty God and then substitute an idol for him which he despises, you know. And that's what they were doing. And then, as soon as they got into that pagan idol and pagan religion, then then the morality went south. The way that, I mean, they would go from being a righteous nation to sacrificing children in a few hundred years, and 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 it had to displease God. You know, it did. And and that's so that's the the idol part of it was what was really pro- provoking to God, I think. And Cliff, <laughs> exactly. And, and to the point that they had forgot that they were even supposed to read it. I mean. And that's, there's not a huge time span in here, because these kings ruled 20, 30, might have been a hundred, a couple hundred years, but how do you forget where the book of the law is when you're a people of the living God? But thank God, when they finally read it and the king heard it, now, let me ask you a question. And I was looking at that, and he said, when he, which one, where is that passage at where they finally read the book? I found the book of the law. Let's look, I had something here I wanted to talk about, I'm just. Said, all right, verse 11 when the king heard the words of the book of the law he tore his clothes was that because he knew what the law said or was that the spirit of God now if he didn't know where the law was he probably didn't know what was in it conditionally I don't either I think it's a case where the Holy Spirit so convicted him though know, that he realized when they read it that's us and that's where we've gotten and that's where we came from and this is what we're supposed to be And to me, that's a real turning point because it didn't take him long to get it. And it didn't take him long to do it. I have down there in the bottom, when he started working on that, it was was action and not talk. He set out to change it. And he didn't call a lot of committee meetings and council meetings to find out. He just said, we're going to fix this. We're going to start worshiping the living God again. So it was a major turning point for him. It doesn't take long to lose a generation. What did Joshua said? A generation that knew knew God, a generation knew about God, and a generation that don't know of God. Period. It's about that's about how long it takes. And you know, and we we've, we've seen some of that from the 40s and 50s to the 60s and 70s until now. We had a generation where I grew up and there, we grew up in there. A lot of people knew about God, but God wasn't as important. And we've got a generation of young people now, some that don't know anything about God. Really, they they know the term, but don't identify. And that's part of it, too. That's part of it, too. And and part of it, part of it maybe is the way the church has handled some of it, but, uh, you know, we can't give up. I mean, the gospel is still powerful enough to do what it's designed to do with or without us and with or without any particular design. I still think you can speak the Word of God and it has the power to reach and save someone or change a life and we don't have to have the perfect setting for that to happen every time as far as buildings and programs and that type of thing. If we ever get away from from still believing that the power of Scripture and the Holy Spirit is sufficient on its own, and then we're leaning on stuff we create. Now, we ought to do all we can, I think, you know, to make our churches effective to reach. But, hey, listen, this still works. He pretty much just said, we just a bunch of sinners. We just messed up, <laughs> But that's that's the start of getting over it, you know. You don't make excuses for it, you just say, Hey, this Yeah, he did. And he had that he had that training to do that. Chapter twenty three, they really get into some covenant renewal where the king, you know, he sends messages and gathers the elders of Judah and uh, and talks about we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna change this. Uh verse three Next the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep his commandments, his decrees, his statutes with all mind and all his heart, and to carry out the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people agreed. So he's brought people back and said, we're going to come back and we're going to covenant with God to do what he's told us to do. And then he starts talking about Josiah's reforms. And uh, and he starts tearing all this stuff down. And if you read down through this passage, there is so much going on here. He's talking about, uh, he tore down houses where the male shrine prostitutes that were in the Lord's temple. I mean, he got... This is a pretty debauched state that these people are in and what they're involved in. But I kind of put a little note at the bottom of that passage, that is action and not talk. He just didn't say we need to do better. He went out and started wrecking this stuff out and tearing this stuff down and throwing this stuff away and and took all the priests and everything out that he had made. it don't say, but I think he probably killed some folks, you know. But he cleaned house. and, uh, and And it pleased God to the point that that, you know, that uh, Israel was, was allowed to move ahead. And then they observed the Passover. Uh, verse 24 said, uh, in, in addition, Josiah removed the mediums, the spiritists, the household idols, the images, and all the detestable things that were seen in the land of Judah and Jerusalem. And that's a big undertaking to, uh, to do that as, as one individual. Verse 26, in spite of that, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath and anger, which burned against Judah because of all the provocations Manasseh had provoked him with. How do you handle that? Here's a man that's done everything you can do to get this fixed, and he said, God's anger. How do we deal with that? How do we explain that passage to someone who's interested in the faith and going, but now wait a minute, you do everything you can do and God's still mad at you? I got an opinion about why it happened. I want to know what y'all's are is yes. he wasn't no, he wasn't that's what I'm saying, but just you would think though that if they're turning and if they've done all these things, God would have a little bit more compassion, but he doesn't yeah, I know I mhm, but manasseh has gone promote him I then what can we? in general you're exactly right, but it's just in general everyday. Right now, terms, what could we say about God looking at that passage? To me, that passage says something very simple God has his limits. And Manasseh reached them. And no matter what happened after that, God had his limits. Enough was enough. I mean, that's my take on it. I mean, and it's just, I'm just looking for general opinions that I can say. But why would he do that? Because it got to a point where God couldn't look over it. Even though somebody else was doing the right thing and changing. And you remember, this is Old Testament. This is black and white. Sin, punishment. Sin, punishment. And there's nothing in between. And God just can't forget it. He had his limitations, and he said, that's it. Well, I don't even know that. But God's punishing the nation. What he ordered. Well, you look down through. All right, read, read, read verse 25. Before him there was no king like him He turned to the Lord with all his mind, all his heart, and with all his strength according to all the law of Moses, and no one rose around him. So, that's no sign. And he says, "But well, in spite of that, the Lord wouldn't turn." And you may have a point. I don't know. I just think it's a good point of discussion to try and talk about why God wouldn't have a little free. Even if it's just one guy, it looked like God would say, "At least I got one here trying to do right." I'm going to honor that, you know. But uh, but he don't. He did. Yes. It's got to be judged. It's got to be judged. Yeah, there's no way around that. It's probably the same same principle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, ma'am. And he can't. He can't overlook it. He can postpone it. But he can't overlook it. He has to deal with it before we can ever be with him in eternity. That sin has to be dealt with. And, and that, But I believe you just got us right on track there. First 2 in chapter 24, and then we need to move into Acts. The Lord sent Chaldean. And he sent all these different raiders against Je- Jehoiakim. He sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word the Lord had spoken through his servants and the prophets. This happened to Judah, Judah only at the Lord's command to remove them from his sight. It was because the sins of Manasseh, according to all he had done. You get back to that passage again. And because of all the innocent blood he had shed, he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not forgive. And so that's, that's what you get into with that passage. The God, he's going to, and he plunges him for it. In the next two or three kings, you have right in the end, you have Nebuchadnezzar, you have pretty much the same thing. Anything else in, in, right here in the end of Kings that just intrigues you? He actually pardoned Je- Jehoiakim right at the end. And uh, he was actually in prison, and brought out of prison, and allowed, and allowed to uh, to live a pretty decent life there. At the end, with the king he was serving under, which is a little bit different. Uh, different. I had one more thing here I want to talk about. And I can't find it. <laughs> Ninth day of the month. Yeah, Jerusalem destroyed. Yeah, and finally you have Jerusalem destroyed here, which he had said it was going to happen. And so Nebuchadnezzar comes against it, and then you start having the exile here. All right, real quickly, we had some. Now, I know it's hard to get excited about those first few chapters of Chronicles. Any question in any of those? I'm not sure, but I think you're right there. I mean, he wasn't a Jew. There was another guy in the Old Testament named Shamgar who was not a Jew who killed six or 700 Philistines. There's, there's people that pop up in the Old Testament there that God identifies that are not Jewish. I'm not sure. We can check on that, but I don't know for sure. For truth I, I really don't. Anybody know what the Chronicles are for? Why when you have all this scripture and you come back and you redo it? What was the purpose of Chronicles? That's the key, one of the keys to that book, to know. Now, what happened to Israel in Kings 25 when we left? The last verse here in Kings, what happened? They were destroyed. They were taken into exile. They were taken into captivity, taken into slavery. And then what's the Chronicles do? When they come back, they need to be reminded they need to be reschooled on these things again. And all Chronicles does is goes back and it establishes all the bloodlines, it establishes the Davidic throne, it establishes where they came from, it establishes the history of Israel and how they got where they were, so the people can track it all the way. Because we know from Scripture that this goes all the way to Christ. I mean, we know, and that was the importance of Chronicles. Most of it was just to make sure and remind and reschool the Jewish people or the Israelites. And many of them were probably born in captivity and didn't know. So the Chronicles were written just to make sure that they didn't lose that history, for the most part. And the first five verses is all genealogy, the first five chapters. Okay, we're in. What are we up? Acts. Jump over to Acts right quick. 21 through 26. A lot of stuff in here, but I will just kind of take it as whatever you want to talk about. In verse 20, Paul leaves the Ephesus, his farewell speech. He knows he's not coming back. They know he's not coming back because he's on his last leg. He's heading to Rome. He knows where he's going. And uh, and then in 21, he starts he, he starts these journeys. He's starting this final journey. And he gets caught up pretty quick. Interesting, in, cha- in chapter 21, you have a, down in verse 7 and 8, it talks about Philip. That's the same Philip. In Acts, that was one of the first. We call it first deacons. Whether or not that was actually when they made deacons, it's also Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch in chapter eight of Acts, the evangelist. And so he's still here, and now he's he's got four daughters that prophesied. And so guess women can teach and speak scripture. <laughs> so I mean, you know, and I read some commentary on that today about how that some said that they may have prophesied only once, they may have been continually prophets. There was always foretelling and foretelling types of prophecy. Don't know which one, and uh, and so these were and and it stipulates virgin. He said they could have been young ladies that were set apart for faith and ministry and were not married. Was never going to marry. So there's two or three different things going to happen in that passage. It's, it's interesting the way they they denote that. It's it's an interesting study if you want to dig into that and, and talk about it. I read one commentary. This guy's pretty dogmatic. He said, now, since women can't teach and preach in the church, then God meant they were just out sharing the good news with people around them. So, 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 you know, when you get four or five commentaries on the table, you can just get about any opinion you want if you look long enough. And the secret is taking the majority of the good ones and saying, this is what we ought to believe. They can all be wrong. All be wrong. Men wrote them, didn't they, brother? <laughs> But uh, these 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 women were identified as people who prophesied, which meant they spoke the scripture, they spoke the good news of God. They were they were well known there, and Philip was a, was known as an evangelist. So these were people of faith. This was a family of faith, and and Paul he he puts his sanction on them. What else going through this? You have this interaction with Paul with the Roman officials here all the way through, and uh, and and he he's, of course Paul stays in trouble anyway. And uh, one, key, one key part of this, when you get over to uh, chapter uh, 22, bound about verse 22 or 23, where they're, t- they're about to punish Paul. And, uh, and Paul said, "Is it right for you to punish me a Roman citizen before I have been condemned?" And, 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 and to punish a Roman citizen without Jew, due court of justice?" Was was a penalty of death, so it really scared the whole bunch. When they, and he says the official stopped and said, "Tell me, are you a Roman citizen?" And Paul said, "Yes, I was born a Roman citizen." And so that, and then he he could have sent him somewhere else, but Paul appealed to Rome, and he knew what he was going to do there. So, and then he gets, uh, he ends up in prison a couple years because what is a, Felix postpones his verdict because he don't know what to do with him, and so that's over a couple years. But Felix liked talking to him. And then you, have, uh, then you have King Agrippa and Bernice. They come and they want to hear him. And so Paul's entertaining a wide variety of audiences. And it was said, you know, while he was there that uh, that they would chain guards to him and he'd win them to Christ. So, you know, I always like Paul's, his attitude that comes out of Scripture that he more or less says, you can do what you want to me. You can lock me up, I'm going to praise God. You can turn me loose, I'm going to praise God. You can kill me and I'm going to be with God. Just do what you want to. When you get to that point, there's not much they can do with you. I mean, and that was their problem. Anything they did with Paul worked against trying to stop the movement because wherever you put him, and if you killed him, you made a martyr out of him. And so, and he was just a he was just a bold enough rascal. To, he's going to be an interesting character in meeting in heaven for me. I don't know about you guys, but <laughs> he'll set you back, and set you free because because he's saying right here in in uh, chapter um, in chapter 25 right now, verse 25, he said. I realized he had not done anything deserving to death, but when he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him. He said, I have nothing definite to write to the emperor about him. He, not, he had not done anything. He said the only thing he found was some of his Jewish brethren had some disagreements with him about their religion and some guy named Jesus that supposedly rose from the dead. Well, that Roman, he didn't care about that. Now Paul, why did Paul want to really get to Rome though? He wanted to preach there and minister there, and he also, when he wrote the, the, the Roman letter, he had intentions to head on into Spain with the gospel. And so he had a purpose for going to Rome. He 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 wasn't worried about the the problems that came with it. So, but that's pretty much what's going on in those four or five chapters is his interaction with the Roman officials, and, and getting there and appealing and spending that couple years there waiting. And but he had the king's court on a regular basis because they loved to talk to him, and they'd bring him in and, uh, and, and 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 converse with him, and he'd share the gospel every time they brought him in. And then we'll pick up next week on what finally happens on the end of him. All right, Psalms and Proverbs. Anything there that anybody? Just uh, we finished up Psalms and we're starting over. Right? See, I had something here in one of them. I was just looking at Psalms one forty nine and one fifty are, are pretty good songs. Psalms one fifty I kind of like says, Hallelujah, praise God in his sanctuary, praise him in his mighty heavens, praise him in his powerful acts, praise him in his abundant greatness, praise him with trumpet blast, praise him with harp and lyre, praise him with tambourine and dance, praise him with flute and strings, praise him with round, resounding cymbals, and praise him with clashing cymbals, and let everything that breathes play, praise the Lord. I just wonder what people do that say you do not supposed to have musical instruments in church. How do you read by a passage like that? And and there's a lot of things in the Bible we can do that. But, you know, those are things we pick up sometimes. And you come back and you read this psalm, and David said, praise him on whatever you got. Kind of interesting to me. I just, uh, we develop a lot of these things sometimes that we think are holy and spiritual because uh, we develop and we really get in Scripture. And you get to read and you go, oh, me? That <laughs> don't. That's not in here. <laughs> that's not in here. Anything else? And that's just one of many different types of things we get into with churches. We were, we were studying last night in, in one of our classes about so many differences that we we struggle with, and we talked about it Sunday in Sunday School class in Corinthians, and uh, and why we have so and why the Corinthians had so many different attitudes and so many different questions about. Marriage and about service and about giving and about Jew and Gentile and eating what food and this food. Why do we struggle with so much of this stuff today about style and, and and all that? Why why do we struggle with a lot of the stuff that we struggle with in churches? Because the Bible doesn't give definite answers on those things. The essentials have to be there: the resurrection, the cross, Christ, the virgin birth. Those are the essentials. They're there. You can't you can't you can't compromise those. Do we really need to stand around and argue about anything? How many times do you do the Lord's Supper a year? Do it every week? Do it once? The Bible doesn't tell you, does it? It doesn't tell you. And that's where we get in trouble. Personally, as Baptists, I wish we did it more often. That's just me. But, you know, that's not something that you start a war with your brother over. <laughs> and that's, that's, that's what's keeping a lot of people away from Christianity is, is we're... We're worrying too much about what the change looks like instead of why we need to change some things and why we need to look at things different. But kind of just when you read through the Psalms particularly, you realize just how open David was with his praise and love of God. And and, uh, he wasn't bashful about it.